0: Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. Hi, welcome back. This is part two of my interview with Hugh Griffiths. As I was saying, he's such a good speaker, as I'm sure you can tell already if you listen to part one, that we decided to just split this interview into uh, two halves so that we didn't have to cut anything out. So yes, so we've heard all about his research in part one. If you're interested in that, go back and listen to it. And in this coming up short episode, we're going to do, uh, he talks about his um, field experiences. He has lots of experience in Antarctica and the Arctic, ships, all kinds of stuff. Um, talks about his highlights, lowlights, all that jazz. And we also talk about science communication and how important it is to go out into the world and spread the joy of polar science and polar knowledge, but also why, you know, it's not... If you're not a very good communicator, or that things like that scare you, then it's not the end of the world. There are ways that uh, you can, you know, be a good academic and share your science without having to be, you know, David Attenborough. So yeah, so um, I hope you enjoy. This is uh, part two with Hugh Griffiths. So what was um, do you have any fieldwork highlights that spring to mind or or lowlights?
1: <laughs> um, I think the thing that makes me a bad benthic marine biologist, because I'm supposed to say I don't care about whales and seals and that kind of stuff, is that I've been so lucky on so many of the expeditions I've been on to Antarctica in particular, but also in the Arctic, where we've seen amazing wildlife. Because it's great seeing stuff on the video and catching stuff and bringing it up to the surface and all these things for the benthic part. But when you've got albatrosses following the ship for days or you've got seals on the beaches or penguins swimming past the ship or whales, we had minke whales follow the ship as we're entering the Amundsen and sea um, where there's this huge barrier of sea ice that you have to break through to get into the Palinia, so the open area of water near Pine Island Bay. And we were followed for three days by... I don't know, at least ten minky whales that followed the ship and were jumping when we went fast enough they would jump at the bow like dolphins and these are huge whales you know eight or ten meters long, some of them are jumping and playing and enjoying being around us so that you could go in have your lunch come back out, and the whales will still be there still so you right. <laughs> go in and recharge your camera and then come back out and the whales are still there and it's just amazing just. Unbelievable. But then there's also these quiet moments. So when I was on Palastra the German ship in 2019 going to Larsen Sea or failing to get to Larsen Sea when we were stuck in the ice, there were cracks and things in the ice all around us. And you didn't know how many there were until it came to sunset because as the sun got low, everything would go kind of pinkish. And then the whales breathing in these gaps in the ice around us Sort of way off into the distance as well their spurts of sort of almost like steam coming up into the air would glow pink as the sunlight hit them and it was the first time you could see them because when there was white background and then strong daylight all day you wouldn't see those things so you realize there was even though it looked like solid ice all around you there were gaps everywhere and there was wildlife so occasionally penguins and visitors and things like that and one day somebody had seen a whale and everybody was all excited and up on the top deck of the ship And about half an hour went past and everyone started getting cold. And so they all went in. And I was the last one left on the top deck of the ship. And I was just sort of leaning against the railing. I just heard this sort of splashing and I looked down. And where the ship had kind of made a gap in the ice, a minke whale had just plonked itself to the surface directly below me to have a little breather. Mm -hmm. And so there was me looking down on this whale and nobody else. I'm screaming and shouting. So did anybody else around? <laughs> Can anybody else see this? This is amazing. I'm just there with my camera taking a picture down the blowhole of a whale, basically. And it stayed there for a couple of minutes, just kind of bobbing up and down with the water. And then just sunk away and went. So then we had this kind of daily meeting that we'd have after dinner where everyone and they'd have a photo of the day. Okay. And someone had a picture of something in the distance or whatever. And I'd snuck about 30 pictures of this whale from above into the photo of the day folder so when they put it up at the end of the thing i hadn't told anybody what i'd seen and it was just amazing because i had this moment where it was just me and this whale and it was like i say as benthic biologist this will ruin my reputation of being a whale hugger person <laughs> or whatever but it was just this it's not a connection the whale probably had no idea i was there but it was my connection with nature if seeing something that you see in the distance or you might see quickly just relaxed in the company of humans, which you don't get wildlife like that anywhere in the world that hasn't been tamed in some way. And this is just a wild animal that's gone up, an air hole. This is perfect for me. I don't know what this big blue thing is, the ship, but I'm sure that's fine. I'll just go and take a breath. And yeah, that was a real kind of highlight. And living on a ship isn't an easy thing to do. There are times when you you know, like, ah, I want to get off here and you can't. Or the last week of any expedition, everybody starts to switch back into thinking about home. So it doesn't matter how long your expedition is, everybody feels a little bit like either sad or gets a bit more selfish or gets a little bit grumpier or a bit more frustrated because they're not home yet. But the things you do when you're down there, the things you see easily make up for any grumbles you have, or if the food's rubbish that season or whatever, it doesn't matter. You really care more about that. And Kath and I had a similar experience in Greenland when we first arrived at the furthest north station we went to. We'd had an awful, awful trouble with transport. We were supposed to get to this Disco Island. Disco Island sounds like a fabulous name for a place. There's no discos on Disco Island. We were supposed to get there, and it took us a day and a bit longer to get there than we thought it would, and we had nobody to help us. We were literally getting ourselves there, and we left in an airport being told, yeah, you're hours late but the boat has stopped and gone now, so you can't get to your island. Um, oh, well, where's the nearest accommodation? Oh, you'll have to sort that out for yourself. So then we had to basically phone a place in Greenland on our mobile to go, if you got a room? And it was ridiculously expensive and made out of containers. It was like water cabins, basically. And um, the next day, we went to get on the boat, we got on the boat, the water got too choppy, had to go back again. They said, oh, it won't be sailing till this time. Off you go, leave your bags here, we'll... After you, we went for a walk. Then we got a phone call saying you've missed the boat. It went without you. <laughs> Not, we've got a boat about to leave. It's yeah. like, it's, so then it ended up being nine thirty at night, the day after we were supposed to be there. That I first arrived at this place, mm. I was so grumpy. I've never wanted to do fieldwork less in my life. Yeah. When I ran, arrived at this station, Kath had been there an hour before me because she was able to catch the boat before. But there's only one space on each boat. So I just went, you go, go and get your stuff there and get settled. So when I got picked up from the jetty and taken to the station, it was, again, kind of sunset, but the sun didn't really set at that time of year there. It just got pink. Catherine had had some dinner, I managed to grab a bit of food. And we're looking out, and in the small bay, there were icebergs, big icebergs. And then we realised they were humpback whales. Lunge feeding and bubble netting and things in the bay, a few hundred metres away from the beach.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we just went and sat on the beach to drink a cup of tea and watch whales for an hour, just feeding and swimming. And there's a baby. And, also, and it was just you suddenly realise the three or four days of travelling to get there and all the disasters and things that went wrong didn't matter once you were there it was just like wow this is like you kind of feel like oh I'm really earning my money when you're doing all of that kind of traveling and then you feel like oh my god we're not even paying to be here when (laughs) we get there and you get to see something like that and we'd just go every night after we had done our field work and sit and watch the whales because we knew they'd be there every night and we knew we'd have a perfect sunset that lasted for hours to be able to see them in and stuff so yeah it's Fieldwork, work, you come back and you remember only the good stuff. You remember all the brilliant stuff and how amazing it was. And you look at your photos and you haven't taken a million photos of the grey, misty, horrible or sleet or the time your fingers got so cold you couldn't use your camera. You've taken photos of all the sunny, nice days and the penguins yeah. that are <laughs> close to you and all the other stuff. So you do create your own reality of what field work's like when you get back. You forget that you actually hated that person because the way they slept their breakfast in the morning or something when you were not ready for that or whatever, all of that goes out the window. But it is like one of those reality TV shows where you're stuck, especially on a ship, with the same 30 people or something for up to three months at a time. It, you know, you get shorter prison sentences for some crimes. Yeah. <laughs> so if people don't enjoy fieldwork as well, it's not because they're a bad scientist or whatever. That You know, the right mix of people really helps And sometimes there will be arguments, and sometimes there will be times when you're homesick or bored or hate the food or seasick. You know, I'm lucky I don't get seasick, but I've had to help out a lot of friends who do because you've got to work as a team. But I think I must have spent over a year of my life in the polar regions now if you had up all my field work. And I wouldn't swap any of it at all, even the bad, bad times in inverted commas because it all makes up that experience and without it
0: it wouldn't be the same thing absolutely well that's a fabulous little rundown of what it's like to do polar <laughs> field work i guess yeah the highs and lows but like you say you only remember the highs so yeah, yeah absolutely Should we move on to uh i know that you do a lot of um kind of outreach with schools and education and all kinds of different projects like that would you like to talk about any some of those for us
1: yeah, um, it's it's interesting, actually, because it, it's terrible. This is going to sound like a vain thing, but actually I received a medal from SCAR for education and outreach or communication work. And as you may have guessed, for the fact you're going to have to edit this podcast a lot, I talk a lot. <laughs> it's very difficult to shut me up. And in a lot of ways, that's a negative. I don't give other people a chance to speak, but in some ways... Being a confident speaker and happy to speak in front of people is a real real lucky thing to have as a scientist because not everybody can do public engagement or not everybody wants to. But I really enjoy letting people in to the world that I get the privilege of going to investigate and understand, especially the polar regions, which are so far away and so expensive to visit as a tourist, that actually most people can't go there. So I know I'm lucky to go there. And... Also, it makes me excited. So if it makes me excited, there must be some other people in the world who are interested to hear about it. And I've always done schools talks and I also think it's important to do stuff that's not just for kids. So I find things like WI groups and stuff, so Women's Institute, when you get to meet a bunch of retired people, mostly, let's put it politely, mm-hmm. an older age bracket is another polite way of putting it, and you're telling them something that they didn't even know existed. That. Is fabulous because you kind of, it's not just about inspiring children. You want the whole of society to understand why the polar regions are important or beautiful or whatever it is the message you're trying to get across. And I also think it's important to go to places where they don't get to hear these kind of things all the time. So Cambridge is full of schools, but they have access to a whole of Cambridge University for guest speakers and British Antarctic <laughs> Survey and all these other things. So I'm not saying they're spoiled. They're, you know, there's a lot of deprived areas in this city and everything as well. But when my friend who's a teacher in a school in London invited me to do an assembly at her school, she's now head teacher. um, It was explained to me by one of the teachers that, statistically zero percent of the kids in that borough will go to university and that's why they wanted to bring in people like me who do weird and interesting jobs Mm. and do these inspiring assemblies and stuff and I said well I'll come for the whole well half a day I'll do stuff in classrooms and stuff as well if you want and it was brilliant but talking to kids who don't see this stuff because they don't even watch the tv programs like the David Attenborough stuff at home you know Mm. maybe something where Maybe they can't even afford a TV or whatever, or it's just, and I don't want to patronize those people, but I do want to give them the opportunities that I had to be inspired as a kid by nature and stuff. So, and those schools are amazing to do because you have it's almost like a pantomime. You show them these animals like a leopard seal with its mouth open or something, and you get like screams and yelps, and then you'll say it's it penguins, and they'll an boo at it or whatever, and then they'll be cheering when you show them a penguin or a seal or something. And if you tell them the elephant seals will burp and fart at their enemies to scare them off or whatever, then they just think that's hysterical. And it's really nice to be able to see an entire group of kids get super excited about something like that. So that, that's cool. Um, but there's other end of it as well. So if you're not a person who likes to stand up on stage, some of the stuff I've done has been advising Blue Planet 2 and um, currently advising Frozen Planet 2 that they're in the production stages of.
0: Oh, that's and exciting. that's
1: amazing where you get to feed science directly into those things where you get the script sent to you later going david attenborough is going to say this bit is it correct can you make sure that what he's going to say is correct and you're like whoa no pressure And you feel like you've got to double check everything and you go to wikipedia to find out about things that you normally write about every day just to make <laughs> yeah. sure double triple know.
0: check yeah. exactly
1: um very those kind of opportunities sure. aren't not everybody gets to do those things, but if you do, I think it's really rewarding, and that comes from very often for something like having a social media presence and things like that. So you're visible, a website, social media, whatever it is that shows that you have those skills, because people in TV and things are looking for advice. So, uh, worth the British Antarctic Survey. Obviously, they come and ask Bass anyway, mm. um, but we'll. Yeah, it's it's just a great fun thing to do some of that because you see another part of the, the world. Of, I've just done a, I recorded something at home that will be used on a social media show by Chris Packham about the stuff that was living on the ice shelf. So I don't get to meet Chris Packham or do that. He's not as exciting and glamorous as kind of people think, but that little story then becomes part of some sort of online show that will be all about weird and wonderful discoveries of animals and you. When I was a kid, I was addicted to those kind of programs. I know that that kind of programming or output can inspire people to do science for a career. So there's, you know, why not help it if you get a chance? And and then sort of the other side of things is other accidental things that get bigger than you expect them to be. Like I did a – I was going to do a talk for my sister's kids' school online at the start of lockdown because they were all learning from home and they wanted something for the kids to do. And it ended up, I think it's been seen by 8,000 people on YouTube or something now where you just make a programme, do it live, and there were thousands watching it live. And I was like, what's going on? Why are there so, you know, you can see the numbers going up on the views and it's just like, why are we this? But once you put it out there on social media and a few people pick it up, you don't know what people are going to like. Not every not everything you do is going to get thousands and thousands of views. You might do something you think is brilliant and it gets 20 views, and you think, Why is that one more important than that one? i spent years on the one that got no views or whatever. But it's it's nice to just put your work out there and just have people think it's interesting, which polar science is interesting. And even if you're doing something that's not as easy to sell as penguin research, because everyone loves a penguin. Even benthic biologists secretly like penguins. But, um, yeah, your work with microplastics, for example, people are already interested in that. If you tell them microplastics around penguins, then that's an easy way to sell them why polar microplastics are important. Even if you're not interested in penguins or studying penguins, we've all got polar bears, penguins, other things that we can use as the kind of gateway drug to polar research, where we can get people (laughs) hooked on the idea that Science in the polls is more interesting, even though technically it's the same science. Just don't tell anybody. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's more scary. interesting because it's got penguins yeah. nearby. It's penguin adjacent. <laughs> penguin Therefore, adjacent. it's like happy feet or something like that. And then they all get excited. So I've been lucky enough to go on enough trips. I came back with lots of nice photos and videos, even you know lots of grey days and stuff. But if you add up enough trips, you get enough sunny days that you can give a nice talk about what you've done as well. So that's always fun to do.
0: Yeah. And would you say that like science communication and doing outreach things or even just having being really active on social media is kind of is is essential too strong a word for like a modern scientist now? Is it like there's a really important I think thing really, to
1: do? It's really well obviously hard it is. It. But there yeah. are some people who aren't comfortable doing it. And some people oh, can yeah. be on a course and learn to present things, obviously. But there are Definitely, those of us who talk too much should be used, you know, channel our energy like the hyperactive kid in school. Go make them run around a field or something. It's like, go away and talk at people for a bit and then come back and do some science when you're less annoying or something. (laughs) That's that's, that's me. There are people like me who shutting me up is hard. Then there are others who need kind of coaxing into it. And there are some people who don't want to and aren't naturally comfortable in front of a camera or in front of a large audience or whatever. And those people can make amazing discoveries mm. what we've got to make sure is that their work is promoted by somebody whether it's a media department or a colleague who's on the paper with them who's good at talking or good at writing or whatever it is that's needed because there are some people who have disabilities for example where they might have speech impediments and things so those people should be heard but it is harder for them and it's asking them to put themselves out there and in a way that they may not be comfortable. So as much as I think it's essential for me and how I do my science, that we have Twitter or um, Facebook Live events or being interviewed by people and being happy to hear my terrible voice coming through some speakers, because I hate hearing myself. And that's the thing. It's like people assume that if you're doing these things, you must love being on Sound TV. Your voice. Right? Not, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nothing worse than watching myself on anything, or hearing my own voice come over. And when I had to record some bits of the press stuff for the under-ice work, it was horrible, because I was recording on my own here, on my phone, and then every time I made a mistake, I had to start again, and I had to listen through to it to make sure the sound had been picked up all right before I moved on to the next bit. And it was torture, because it was all just me on a screen, But it doesn't mean I can't do these things. It's like I don't really enjoy doing statistics very much. But when you get the results, then it's a good thing to have done. You know, it's like you have it. So communicating isn't for everybody. It doesn't mean your work shouldn't be communicated. But I would say that if you don't share information about what you've done in whatever medium you're happy to share it in, whether you write a blog or you... Have your own website, or you do something? So even people who are a bit shy should try and promote their work in some way because most people are starting to pick things up like, oh, there's a new paper out, I've seen it on Twitter, rather than waiting the three months before you get your Google Scholar alert saying new papers in your area or whatever. If it's out there and you've seen it and you've read a simple version of it on social media, for example, you know if it's of interest to you straight away and then you'll go and download the paper whereas also people who can't access it. There are a lot of people in the world, all over the world, that aren't as privileged as Western people who have access to every journal ever. And if your stuff isn't in an open access journal, they know who you are and they can request it through social media and say, could you send me a copy of your paper? And that, you could be reaching people in some of the most extreme parts of the world where you never thought you'd have contacts with before. So... It's another good way of meeting people and building collaborations is this kind of literally socially networking, not just using it to argue about what's the best pizza topping or yeah. who we hate this, year, this week out of whatever group that we're hating this week. Using it to build real networks is is amazing. And I really like it when I get followed by someone who doesn't have a million followers or whatever, But I read their little bio, and if that's really important to me, I'll follow back if there's something in there that makes me go, "Oh, that or their pinned tweet or something, if it's got a little interesting fact that I never knew before or something about them that's a bit personal and makes it seem like a real person and not just another (laughs) robot-style account. You know, they're not trying to sell me Bitcoins or something. It's somebody saying, I really love, and it'll be – don't tell the worm people I said this, but some people go, oh, yeah, I study worms of Cambodia or something. And it's just like, I know nothing about Cambodia, and I know nothing about Cambodian worms. Following this person, I might learn something which will make me think differently about something. Whereas if they've just got a, a profile that's just their name, maybe what and that did, it's just like, well, I don't know. So I think, even if you're a bit shy, you put out something that explains what your selling points are, who you are, Because I really love following random people from lots of different things. And so do other people. I've literally had conversations with what would be considered fairly big UK celebrities because they're interested in Antarctica or they're interested in deep sea life or they're interested in something else where they ask you a question or retweeted some stuff and you're like, oh, my God, Lorraine Kelly off the television just retweeted some of my stuff. Yeah. Like, she's been on TV since I was a kid and I had no idea. But she cared about Antarctica and she'd been to South Georgia and she really wants to go to Greenland and asked me, you know, have you got any words of advice if I ever visit Greenland? And I said, don't go in mosquito season. You know mm-hmm. it's you know, it doesn't change your life if you talk to a celebrity. But it is really funny that you think, I don't know who'll be interested in this, I don't need a Twitter account. Why do I need one? No one's gonna be interested. And it turns out that someone who's on breakfast television every day found what you said interesting. So someone who has no connection to science, no connection to of the world that you're in might find it interesting so yeah if you're thinking about it give it a go the worst thing you can get is you end up with 20 followers and some of those become new collaborators or something that's you know the worst case all this kind of idea of cancel culture and bullying and things online most science twitter isn't like that and it's actually a nice place to be and you can always mute things if you want to or block things so it's not it's not impossible
0: yeah, yeah, that was one of the first pieces of advice that I got when I started my PhD, get a Twitter, <laughs> just real science, and I was quite surprised, but it's, it is really good. And I suppose it's really good for, like you say, those people who don't feel comfortable talking in front of crowds or you know, saying stuff on YouTube or whatever. So,
1: And some people do Instagram and do amazing science on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. And other people, like there are tens of thousands of people following accounts that talk about ice core drilling on TikTok.
0: And, and, like, really? and
1: I'm just like, to look science, goes to, <laughs> science goes to TikTok or whatever. So I'm, I, I've been doing this for too many years to try and chase every new platform that comes up. And it took me a while to get onto things like Twitter. But the reason I pursued Twitter was because I was finding what other people on there scientifically or to do with LGBT stuff and other things like that were saying that were interesting or it was a good source of information. When someone comes to ranty, I'll either mute them or block them, you know. Mm. But I'm probably one of those ranty people on other topics where people are muting and blocking me, so I don't feel guilty about that, and neither should they. But just, you know, even if you don't want to do that, but you could write a blog for your university department or your institute about what you do, a day in the life of being me, either on fieldwork or in the lab or what it's like to be a Polar student when there's no other Polar people around, or your first trip to a Polar conference, that would make quite a good blog. And those kind of networking things will help. They'll raise your profile. Anything that says what you're good at and what you're interested in will help.
0: And as you say, what's nice about Polar is you're probably, apart from your academic colleagues, the only person who your friends and family know who's doing Polar stuff in their life. You know, So you've got a small audience already who's more interested just because the polar is a bit more glamorous <laughs> I it, suppose.
1: It, it, it is if you've got a picture of a penguin that you've taken yourself
0: yeah. or a seal
1: <laughs> or here's me on a glacier or here's me on a ship or whatever uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's it's amazing and it, I, you also pre-pandemic time there was a lot of travel involved and that is hard for some people being away from home and all the rest of it but also you come back with amazing stories. Even if you only ever do one field season or one trip to Antarctica or the Arctic, that's one more than most of the world's population ever get to do. So it is a fantastic, even if it doesn't end up being your career, because the, the truth is a lot of postdocs or PhD students never end up doing what they're studying at the moment. I, you know, my whole life and career path shows that you end up in random places, and usually for the best. But if you've had a chance to experience any of it, it will change the way you think about things compared to other people. You know about a part of the world that nobody else knows about. Even if you've never been there, but you've studied it, say you've done a a climate model of the Antarctic or glacial stuff or whatever from data, you know about a place that other people don't even think about in their day-to-day consciousness. So the way you think is changed just by the way you've interacted with polar regions, whether it's for real or virtually. And... For me, being able to go to a place where wildlife is less scared of you than cows and sheep are in this country and being able to just sit on a beach and watch penguins trip over their own feet or whatever and just think, this is the most ridiculous place I've ever been in my life. And I know you've been to South Georgia and I just think it's a stunning place. It's so beautiful. If you get there on a sunny day, there's nothing in the world like it. But it's that thing of It's not our place. Everywhere else in the world, you know, it's for humans. It's got signposts. It's all got pathways, and it's all, you know, streetlights or whatever else. You go to Antarctica, and just you know you're visiting. Mm -hmm. You know that if you were left there alone, you just wouldn't stand a chance. That would be you gone, sort of. And yeah, so it's a privilege to visit places that are so far away and be so well looked after by the teams who look after us. So get us there alive and bring us back alive and feed us and clothe us and transport all our equipment and run the ships and run the stations and all of those things. And all of that is set up so we can do things that we're interested in. Yeah. You know, have a little prod around and look in the much bigger version of that rock pool or whatever. It's kind of yeah, it's the minute you forget that is when you should stop doing polar science. If you don't feel wow know i'm lucky to be able to do this stuff then there's hundreds of people who'd love to take your place so (laughs) 20 something years of doing it and having been to the arctic and the antarctic multiple times i can't complain you know it's a it's a fabulous way to spend your life and lockdown helps get a bit of perspective on that as well because you suddenly realize that not being able to travel and not being able to go to these places you've still got amazing memories You've got amazing photographs and you've got the chance to do it again in the future when things have calmed down and changed a bit so you know you got to get a lot of things into perspective compared to how i could have been sat at this computer screen the whole of my career and never done any of those things so i'm really pleased that i've got a chance
0: So that brings us to the final part of the podcast called the polar plug it's where we give you our guest a little chance to just kind of talk about anything really a project a person um anything that you'd like to promote to the general public so take it away
1: um actually i think a lot of the work i do at british antarctic survey is to do with equality or equity and diversity and inclusion and as a member of a minority myself i understand that the people who are really pushing for quality and diversity and to change this kind of old white men with beards image of polar science and to really reflect society as a whole. And we're part of the um, diversity in polar science initiative, which in the UK had um, something that's called polar horizons, where we brought together now it's in, the, you know, over a hundred students or early career researchers who don't do polar research in to see what, day in the life of polar science is like and to find out about the diversity of science that you can do at the polls. Um, And that has been an amazing initiative and it was really brilliant to help set that up. Um, And that's especially because it covers minority groups of all kinds that are underrepresented. But I'd also like to give a shout out to the, the group that really started all of this kind of initiative within polar science, which is the Women in Polar Science Network, which has been running for seven years now. And there are people like Renu Kabada and others who started that group. It done an amazing effort in showing that bringing people together and creating a network and celebrating success and showing positives and really promoting each other and being there for each other has, has pushed what we think of in terms of polar science in a different direction. So the kind of general public consciousness now, the idea of a woman being working in Antarctica in the public mind has been changed by people like that, actually going out there and putting that message out there that they exist and that there should be more of them and that they're doing an amazing job. So, yeah, it's really just to say thank you to those sorts of people who are really pushing the boundaries of polar science and polar research and showing that anybody can work within polar research. You don't have to go to Antarctica if you can't physically get there. You don't have to you don't have to be big, strong, and tough to work at the poles. You know, you don't the, the stereotypes existed for a reason back in the day, but there's no reason today why any of those kids in that school in London or anything like that could become the next polar scientist. And I think it's really important to have that message in such a positive way. so... Women in Polar
0: Science is a really good example of that. Okay, fabulous. That is an absolutely excellent message and one we're keen to promote here on Polar Times. And we will link all of those things. You say polar horizons, women in polar science, we'll put them in the bio of this episode so people can easily find information like that. Okay, excellent. That brings us sadly to the end of another episode of Polar Times. Thank you everyone who's listening for coming back. And if you have any questions that you'd like to ask us or ask any polar scientist, then you can email us. We have a Gmail, it is times at gmail.com. Once again, that email is times at gmail.com. Or you could also tweet APEX, uh, their Twitter is at polar underscore research. And all that's left for me to do is to thank my guest, Hugh Griffiths. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.
1: Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.